welcome to episode one of Emetophobia Help, the podcast about life with emetophobia, personal stories of failures and triumphs, resources for therapists, and where to get help. I'm your host, Anna Christie, a recovered emetophobic and CBT therapist who has treated emetophobia exclusively in adults and children for over 10 years. Trigger warning, we will use the word vomit from time to time, but that's all, and there will be no descriptive stories or gory details. Hearing the word over and over is good for you. The more you hear it, the less it will bother you. I want to start my story in August of 1996 when my family decided to drive from Vancouver to Los Angeles so my 13-year-old daughter could dance with her dance school in Disneyland. Everyone else in the dance school was traveling by plane, but I was so terrified of seeing someone vomit on the plane that I convinced my husband that we should drive and make a fun road trip out of it. Nothing could have prepared me for what happened on that trip. The ride down was fairly uneventful, as was Disneyland, but on the way back we decided to take the scenic route, which was a really windy road along the coast of California. I was driving at the time, and my two daughters were in the very back row of our minivan. Suddenly I heard coughing and asked, what's that? It was my 11-year-old vomiting. Oh no, I screamed. My worst nightmare was being in a car with someone who got carsick or anywhere trapped while someone is vomiting. It's in the garbage can, yelled my 13-year-old, as if that would make it okay. I pulled off the road to a very narrow shoulder and ran halfway up a cliff, crying so hard. I sat down with my head in my hands and sobbed. My husband sat down beside me and tried to console me. She's okay now. It's okay. It was not okay. Nothing about this was okay. He tried to get me to get back in the car, but there was no way on God's green earth that I was going to do that. All that went through my head was how to get home from Northern California without flying, getting on a bus, or getting back in my car. Yet all that came out of my mouth was, I want my dad, I want my dad, I want my dad. My dad died in 1968 when I was just nine years old. As I was saying it, It was like I was aware that it was a crazy thing to say, and it felt a bit like I was making a movie and making up the lines, and that I didn't really mean them. Yet it was all I could say, over and over, with a few intermittent no, when my husband tried to tell me I needed to get back in the car. Of course I had to get back in, and eventually my legs worked. I opened the sliding door of the van and my 11-year-old was crying and apologized and said she was fine now. The road had just been too windy. I remember telling her, it's not your fault. I just have this terrible fear and I don't know why, but it is absolutely not your fault, okay? She nodded. I hope it was enough. We drove a few miles to a town and rented a very expensive two-bedroom, two-bathroom suite in a hotel. It was perfect for me to be able to calm down. I also had two Valium with me that I had been keeping for years. So I took a bath and took one and went to sleep. The next day we headed out for the main highway. I took another Valium and somehow made it home in that car. My dad who died was my primary caregiver. He was a minister, so he worked 
mainly nights and weekends, while my mother worked in the day as a school secretary. So pretty much Dad looked after me and took me around on his nursing home calls and such from the time I was two. My mother was actually an old battle axe. God rest her soul. She'd be 105 if she were alive now. She was angry most of the time and a strict disciplinarian. Dad was like every way you could describe the perfect mother. Warm and caring and cuddly and fun. Everyone who met him just loved him, and his relatives and friends described him as a saint. He gave me pretty much whatever I wanted, and we both hoped Mom wouldn't find out when she got home. ...and a civil rights activist, single-handedly responsible for desegregating schools and restaurants and public bathrooms and drinking fountains. His work paralleled that of Martin Luther King, and I'm thankful to this day that Dad died just before King did, or his assassination would have broken his heart. I was born 12 years after my sister and 14 years after my brother, and I was neither an accident nor a surprise. My mother, who often claimed she hated children, still wanted another one, even though she was 43 years old. And so I was born. I don't recall much before that fateful night in October of 1962, just a month before my fourth birthday. But apparently my brother Kenny took off on his motorbike to see a movie with a friend. There were no helmet laws in Bermuda because, after all, the speed limit on the whole island was just 50 kilometers or 30 miles an hour. Nevertheless, if your bike light stops working and it's dark and another motorcycle inadvertently comes down over a blind hill and knocks you flying off your bike, you will smash your head into a cliff. Such was the phone call my parents got that night. Your son is in the hospital in a coma in an iron lung. Brain surgery relieved the pressure, but Kenny was left in a vegetative state, unable to breathe on his own. Five days he lingered in hospital. I remember asking for him every day, and Mother would say, Kenny's in the hospital. He's very, very sick. Very, very sick. Very sick. Sick. I remembered it. Sick, sick, sick. In Bermuda, it was the same word that the British folks who lived there used for vomiting. Kenny was very sick, and on the fifth day, he died. I think my emetophobic fate was pretty much sealed that day. I don't know, though. Nobody really knows what causes this phobia. Other people lose their brothers, and they don't get emetophobia. My dad was never the same after Kenny died, of course. What would you expect? But to me, he was still my dad, my everything, my rock. I remember about a year later when I was four... I thought it might be fun to swallow a Bermuda penny, a little bigger than a quarter, and it got stuck in my throat. I told my sister, who was babysitting me at the time, Sheila, I swallowed a penny, and she ran next door and got the nurse, uh, who, who was our next door neighbor. We have to make you vomit, she said. She mixed up some mustard powder and salt and warm water. It's a wonder she didn't kill me with this idea. But anyway, I remember standing with the two of them over a toilet, but not vomiting. And then the nurse stuck her finger down my throat, and I still didn't vomit, but I was totally not impressed. When my parents got home, they took me straight to the hospital, 
And I remember being wheeled down the hallway and freaking out that I had to leave dad. But very soon I was under anesthetic, probably for about 30 seconds. And the penny was out and I was waking up. I guess that was a fairly traumatic situation. I don't really know. I have a clear memory of it. But again, that alone does not account for a phobia because a lot of kids go through emergency surgery and such and they don't have phobias, let alone a metaphobia. I do know that from around that time or earlier after Kenny died, I became terrified of people lying down. If someone were lying on their couch or was in bed, I would not go into the room. One time we went over to my aunt and uncle's place and Uncle Blondie was lying on the couch watching a hockey game. I came up the stairs into their apartment and immediately started crying and clinging to my dad. Blondie, would you mind sitting up? He asked. Sure, said Blondie, and he sat up and I was perfectly fine. I do remember the next few years being afraid of sickness, sick people, or feeling sick, but not to the point where I would have been diagnosed with a phobia, I don't think. But then my dad, the center of my world, got colon cancer. The first symptoms he had was vomiting and he used to make the strangest sound, which I won't do for you here, of course, because my listeners don't need to hear anything like that. But it was a unique sound, which I had never heard either before or since, even though I've watched so many YouTube videos and downloaded so many sounds of vomiting to try to find it. I know it's not just my memory playing tricks on me, because when I was an older teenager, my Aunt Deanie, his sister, told a story about how weird of a sound my dad made when he was vomiting. At eight years old, I remember being terrified of that sound. And because it was 1967, nobody thought it was actually a good idea to tell children the truth about what was happening to their parent when they were dying. So dad's death a year later came as a terrible shock to me, but not to anyone else. My sister was married and had moved away, and I was left in this world with no one but my battle-axe mother. God rest her soul. We're talking full-blown emetophobia now. I managed to hide it from everyone, even mom, and get through high school. I was one of the most discriminating eaters ever. Very few things would I eat, but mother made sure I ate enough to survive. Then I went away to university, 90 miles from my small town, which was the closest university. So I had to live in a dorm. Nobody monitored my eating. Long story short, I got to the point by second year when all I would eat was bananas, digestive cookies, and milk. This was 1977, remember, so there was no internet, no information to be found. I looked at length for a phobia of vomiting in the library, poring over stacks and stacks of psychology books. Nothing. I was convinced that I was the only person on earth who felt this way, which further solidified in my mind that I should tell no one. But one thing I did know, and that was that if I kept eating the way I was eating, I was going to die. By luck or the grace of God, I decided to treat myself with gradual exposure, even though I had never heard of such a term. What I decided I should do was to try to get eating again, bite by bite. 
So I remember the first dinner very clearly, poached sole, tater tots, and broccoli with cheese sauce. I took one bite of fish, one small piece of broccoli, and one tater tot, and I cried the whole time. In fact, I did a lot of crying for the next two years or so until I was eating properly again and until I didn't feel like I had to force myself anymore. I met my husband a year after I graduated university, 1980. He was raising an adorable little five-year-old boy on his own. When we started to get more serious, he asked me how I felt about having more children if we were to get married. I told him that I had long decided I did not want children because if they vomited, I'd probably run out into traffic screaming with my arms flailing above my head. He told me that when his son was sick, he had to look after him because there wasn't anyone else. And he doesn't mind, so if our own kids were sick, he would also look after them. It sounded like a pretty good deal. So in 1981, we got married and I adopted the sweetest little boy ever. He's 44 now with a wife and three kids of his own, and I still love him to pieces. In 1983, I'm pregnant with my first baby. No morning sickness, but I figured I really needed to get over this phobia once and for all before the baby was born. I finally worked up the courage to tell my doctor about it, and he referred me to a psychiatrist who couldn't do much to help me. But then he heard of a study being done right here in Vancouver with other people who had a fear of vomiting. Remember, no internet. I was blown away, so I eagerly joined this study. It was conducted by Dr. H. Claire Phillips, and if you look on Google Scholar, you'll find it there as one of the very first studies ever done in the world on emetophobia and cognitive behavioral therapy. She published it in 1984. If you read it, you'll find near the beginning where she talks about the baseline testing that she did. One of the tests was to see how long you could watch a video of someone vomiting. She reports that one of the test subjects had a panic attack after watching the video for only 0.5 seconds. That was me, ladies and germs. Oh yeah, the worst of the worst, freak among freaks. At least that's what I told myself. I didn't get how anyone else could stand to have that video turned on. I didn't want them to turn it on, but they insisted, and then I could say stop whenever I wanted. So they clicked on, and I said stop. <laughs> we learned breathing techniques and progressive muscle relaxation skills, and then went through exposure therapy with a video of someone vomiting, although they were really just pretending with their head in a trash can the whole time. I was more scared of other people in the group, to be honest, because they were all afraid that they would vomit. But the therapy was immensely helpful. I learned that vomiting was unlikely most of the time, and that my nausea feelings were anxiety almost all of the time. And I learned how to control my anxiety with my breath and the relaxation of my body. It was enough to get me through two more kids and to stumble through life, although I still made my husband deal with the kids when they were sick, and I would not put myself in any situation where I might be trapped inside somewhere with someone who might vomit. I know, I know, right? That Disneyland trip. One month after we got back from Disneyland, I was diagnosed with breast cancer. 
just when I thought my worst nightmare was on that California roadway. All of the things I was the most terrified of, general anesthetic, chemotherapy, being pinned down for radiation treatments. But what was the alternative? Die a horrible death and leave my three kids without a mother? No, I promise you, emetophobic listeners, one of the reasons you have this phobia is that your survival instinct is hyper aware and trigger happy. But when death really smacks you in the face, you'll choose to live. And yes, just like you, I had said a thousand times with conviction that I would rather die than vomit. And definitely I would rather die than have chemo. But my little girl was only 11. I'd be damned if I was going to do to her what my dad did to me. So I made a deal with God. Just as a side note, from a systematic theology point of view, I don't really think God makes any such deals, but it made me feel good at the time. I made a deal with God that if she let me live, I would work as hard as I could to get over this phobia once and for all. No more California highway meltdowns, ever. Well, I didn't vomit after surgery, and chemo isn't as bad as everyone on TV and the movies make it out to be. They give you good drugs, even in 1996, like on Dancitron or Zofran. And you're nauseous, but the chemo, it didn't make me vomit. However, at the end of the last chemo treatment, I got an infection, like a little boil, on my hoo-ha. The doctor prescribed me an antibiotic without thinking that I'd just had chemo and couldn't properly digest said antibiotic. I knew for about an hour I was going to vomit. I could just tell. I paced back and forth and tried to clench my entire GI tract so it wouldn't happen, but finally I gave in. And I'll never forget the words that entered my head immediately afterward. Well, that was a big, fat nothing. And then I kind of thought, I can't believe I wasted all that time being scared of just that. It was such a big, fat nothing. Now, unfortunately, I was still terrified of seeing or hearing someone else vomit. Even if I couldn't catch what they had, I didn't care. I was petrified of them all. But God kept up God's end of the bargain, so to speak. So five years later, when I was cancer-free, in 2001, I finally found a therapist who could help me with the emetophobia. It would be a whole other podcast for me to tell you about the nine therapists who did not help me. To be honest, even this one didn't actually help me with the phobia. I'd given up looking for someone who understood it or knew how to treat it, but he helped me by listening and caring and walking with me through it all. I had pretty much figured it out for myself by that time. After all, we had entered the information age. I found other emetophobics online. I found the word emetophobia online. One of these others, a woman named Margaret in the Netherlands, was a computer techie person, and she uploaded a series of pictures of um, cartoons and then pictures of people vomiting. There was still no YouTube, but I knew every single movie that had someone vomiting in it, so I rented them all from Blockbuster. 
I also ordered a video online from someplace called Ambassador Video or something like that in the UK. It had been made by some psychologists in Sheffield, England, and it showed scenes of people actually vomiting. I got better. The one who screamed and ran up that hill and wouldn't get back in the car volunteered as a chaplain in the hospital. And eventually I stood by a woman's bedside as she was vomiting and I calmly asked her if there were anything I could do for her. Nine years later in 2010, my daughter and I both caught norovirus when I was moving her to another province and we were together in her one bedroom basement suite. The day after, as we sat at the kitchen table, sipping Gatorade and sort of musing and staring out the window, thinking about the whole experience, it's almost like a light bulb went on for her and she said, Mom, you weren't scared at all. Oh yeah, I said, huh. And that was that. By 2010, I had been a United Church minister for over 20 years. In my Master's of Theology training, I had learned to do grief and crisis counseling, as well as hospital and end-of-life counseling. So after being successfully treated for emetophobia, I went back to school and took a two-year postgraduate diploma in marriage and family counseling. And following that, I took courses in other types of therapy, including CBT. So in 2010, I changed careers from ministry and became a full-time licensed psychotherapist. For the past 10 years, I have treated exclusively emetophobic people over Skype from all over the world. To date, I have had over 130 emetophobic clients. My wait list is so long for now that my practice is closed, but my mission is still to help emetophobics and therapists treating emetophobia however I can including with my free resource website for therapists, my blog, my social media, and now this podcast. And that is my story.